Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We have a very special guest with us here today, Walter Borneman. And if you remember, we interviewed Walter specifically about Admiral Nimitz, and he gave us a, a wonderful account of his uh, writing and research on Admiral Nimitz from his book that he did called The Admirals, which was an excellent book, great reading. And at the same time, he forwarded the book Brothers Down to Me, which was his story of Pearl Harbor and the fate of many brothers aboard the USS Arizona. The research is so good and so thorough that he literally puts you on the Arizona in Pearl Harbor on December 7th in 1941. It was incredible. There were 38 sets of brothers that served aboard that ship. There were 2,403 Americans killed at Pearl Harbor. The Arizona accounted for 1,177 of those. And the casualty rate among the brothers was an incredible 80%. It was December 1941. Buddy Christensen and Big Brother Sonny were about to head into Honolulu to take a photo together to send to their mother for Christmas. Wait here, Sonny told Buddy before disappearing below decks to fetch a hat. Buddy never saw him again. The surprise attack at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941 remains one of the most traumatic events in American history. America's battleship fleet was crippled. Thousands of lives were lost and the United States was propelled into a world war. Few realize, however, that aboard the iconic, doomed USS Arizona were an incredible 78 blood relatives. Tragically, in an era when family members serving together was an accepted, even encouraged practice, 63 of the Arizona's 1,177 dead turned out to be brothers. In Brothers Down, acclaimed historian Walter R. Borneman returns to that critical week of December, masterfully guiding us on an unforgettable journey of sacrifice and heroism, all told through the lives of these brothers and their fateful experience on the Arizona. To tell the moving stories of the men and their parents, wives, and sweethearts, Borneman draws from a treasure trove of unpublished source material and sheds new light on the day that changed these families' lives and the world forever. Walt, it's good to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, John. It's good to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Are you staying busy? You've got at least, what, 25 books in print? Well, not quite that many, but I might be pushing 20, so there you go. <laughs> well, you've been prolific. And this book, this book, Brothers Down, is just, it's a book that just grabs you in the gut and just keeps going. It's a fantastically well-researched book and well-written. It makes you feel like you're there with these guys. Well, thanks. You know, I, I got to say, it's it, it is difficult to describe this book because it's uh, it's certainly much more of an emotional book than I've written in the past. You know, you you mentioned my book on the admirals, and I I've done a book on James K. Polk, president, a, a couple of books on on earlier wars, but this is the first time I've I've really focused on the men behind the scenes, if you will, uh, guys who who quite frankly out there in Hawaii in in, in 1941. Uh, were kind of hoping just to see the next sunrise. They weren't involved in the politics or the policies much. Uh, a lot of them, as I'm sure we'll talk about, are writing home to girlfriends and everything. So um, I, I was surprised, John, how much um, this really affected me personally and emotionally by the time I got done with it. I think it was in the forward that you wrote that you were inspired to do this book when you actually, when you were preparing the admirals and you toured Pearl Harbor. Can you explain that experience? Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have been to Pearl Harbor, and 
you know, you go out to the Arizona and take the launch out and the memorial is is, is very moving. But you you go up to um, the cemetery that's in the punch bowl and start going through the names. It's a much more quieter place than the harbor. And I, I started seeing these these names that were from the Arizona and uh, the same surname. And you start to think, my goodness, had, had there really been that many brothers on this ship? And, you know, I, I was certainly, when I was writing the Admirals, as you suggest, aware of the big picture. And I was aware of the famous story of the band and, and that there were brothers on the ship. But I, I really just had no idea uh, that there were 38 sets, and as, as you suggest, uh, there were three sets of trios, as well as a father and son on board. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, the thing that was most moving to me when I really got into this is that all, most so many of these men are, are gone. In fact, all of the brothers are gone. But their uh, next generation and many of them didn't have children. They didn't live long enough to have children. So they're basically in a situation where I'm talking to their nieces or nephews or sometimes the children of a younger brother who immediately thought that he had to uh, sign up in terms of avenging their deaths. And, I, you know, I, it was quite emotional. And I was struck with two things. One, how they were really quite willing, quite proud, actually, to share uh, their relative story with me, number one. And number two, that even if, as it's been by this December, it'll be 80 years since Pearl Harbor, even in that passage of time, people today and relatives that they didn't necessarily know how personal the loss that family still feels. So yeah, John, it was, it, it was an emotional book for me to do. What was it like working with those families? I know it had to have been gut-wrenching. I know you said they were extremely cooperative and very proud to be to be able to give you this information so that more Americans know exactly what happened. What was it like for you? Well, you know, in, in many cases, uh, I would be interviewing them, sometimes in person. Quite frankly, they were all spread out all over the country um, by, by phone or by email exchange. But, you know, I think the neatest part of it, actually, because there, there was a very rewarding part beyond the, the kind of the emotions, is that a number of these people in the families who had heard the stories or they were the children of a younger brother and they're like, oh, yeah, we you know, we haven't connected with with Uncle So-and-So's kids in uh, or or other relatives in years and years. So it was great in a couple of instances of my research being able to put families together with other parts of their families that they hadn't been in touch with for a while. And actually, sometimes you think about, well, it's best to go and, and sit down in front of somebody for an interview. But even before all of the uh, Zooms we've been doing of late with the pandemic, a few times I actually arranged conference calls. So we have various siblings on the phone together. And it was great to hear them go back and forth talk about their experiences growing up, hearing about the relatives that they had. And, you know, it was also great to hear them say, oh, you know, I didn't know that. Or, uh, yeah, you know, Uncle Bob told me this or that. So that was kind of a fun part. Uh, and I think an uplifting part of, of the research from, from the family sides. 
you started out the first chapter with the story of the Giovinazzo family. What made you choose them, and why did you choose that for, to begin your story? Well, you know, there were many stories I, I guess I um, could have chosen, but I, I wanted to sort of set the scene and set it very personally in, in one particular family. And the Giovinazzo story is that uh, there were actually two brothers. One, the older one, Joe, was on the repair ship, the Vestal, which ends up being moored next, next to the Arizona. And a younger brother, Mike, who has been a great baseball player, he'd love nothing better to come back and, and play a little uh, semi-pro ball. But he's on the, he's on the um, uh, Arizona, and he's just about ready to go home on leave. Well, I think the reason that I picked that story is that this family, like every other family, after they heard about the attack, knew they had relatives at Pearl Harbor. And the question is, oh, are they all right? What's going on? And there are people who are writing uh, letters, sending telegrams. They're waiting to hear. And in the Giovinazzo instance, uh, Mike, again, was was about ready to come home on leave. And they, they heard that Joe was safe. They heard that Mike was safe. And then, um, you know, he didn't show up. And, and with all the transit and everything, they weren't too worried about that. And then they got a telegram uh, saying he was missing. And of course, having been told that he was okay, which by the way, the telegram saying he was okay, which was an error, arrived as they were celebrating uh, Christmas Eve. So that's pretty poignant. Well, a few weeks go by, they expect him home on leave, he doesn't show up. And of course, finally, they get the telegram that, gosh, we made a mistake. Uh, the Giovanazzo the brother who's alive is, is in fact Joe. Uh, we regret to inform you that, that Mike is missing and presumed dead. So, you know, you, you, all of these families go through emotional roller coasters, but to be told a couple of different times, a couple of different ways, um, you know, I felt that was a particularly poignant piece to sort of sort of set the tone. And then, of course, after that, I, I back up a little bit, tell the history of the ship, because the, the ship is really a personality in, in this story as well. For the sake of our listeners, could you give us a little history of the ship and then also put us on the morning of December 7th, 1941? Sure. Um, you know, the USS Arizona is launched in, in 1915. It's, it's 600 feet long, and when it's launched, it really is part of this premier culture of the American Navy, something that they've had really since the 1890s, that the battleship is king or queen, if you will, of the seas, and that that's the way you exhibit uh, foreign policy power. That's the way you defend interests not only at home or around the world. Well, the United States goes and builds battleships very, very quickly. There's a little bit of a moratorium after World War One when uh, a number of people think that, well, you know, maybe there really is going to be peace. But uh, the folks who have signed the Washington Naval Treaty, including Japan, don't really stick by those limitations. So they, Japan continues to build major battleships, and very quickly the United States decides that it needs to go ahead and continue to build battleships as well. So by the morning of December 7th, 1941, there are actually nine battleships assigned to the Pacific Fleet. They're all named under the naming convention that the U.S. Navy has used after states. 
Now, out of those nine, one of them, by coincidence, my home state of, of Colorado, the USS Colorado is in Bremerton, Washington, undergoing its, its annual uh, refitting. So there are eight battleships in Pearl Harbor that morning. They're all anchored and moored along a place called Battleship Row. And what has happened is that as tension has begun to increase with uh, the Japanese over interests in the Pacific, got to remember, we think of World War II as Americans as starting on, Jan on December 7th, 1941. But actually, Japan has been at war in Asia since 1937 with China. And in the summer of, of 1941, Great Britain, the Netherlands, and the United States basically impose an oil embargo on Japan. And they do so to try to shut down Japan's war-making capability. But I think, in retrospect, most historians would agree that maybe that simply expedited Japan's need to strike into the Dutch East Indies, acquire those oil refineries, because there's no, there's no oil at home in, in Japan's home islands. So the fleet is put out at Pearl Harbor, the battleships, as well as aircraft carriers, to try to um, do two things, I think. One, show Japan that the United States is serious about defending its interests, and two, sort of marshal as forward forces that uh, if Japan strikes south, for example, invades the Philippines, that was sort of what had been war-gamed at that time, the U.S. fleet would be, would be able to uh, sail westward and repulse that threat. So that sort of brings us to the morning of December 7th, uh, 1941. So go ahead, John, if you want to ask anything else, or we can, can, we can continue through that morning, whatever you wish. We'll return to our interview with Walter Borneman and his book, Brothers Down, the story of the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor, right after these sponsor messages. And now we return to our interview. As I understand it, it was the Nevada that was playing the Star Spangled Banner. The band was out on the deck and they were playing the Star Spangled Banner when the first Japanese planes came in. That's correct. I mean, I, I think most of us have probably seen the movie uh, Tora, 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 and the band, uh, a number of people, and it's, it's like so many of these things, they're, they're sort of legends that grow up, and some of it's shorthand, some of it's just uh, misinformation, uh, would have the band playing on the Arizona. That's not true. All of the bands on capital ships, aircraft carriers and um, uh, battleships would routinely uh, congregate in the morning, eight o'clock, start of a new watch, and play the national anthem as the colors were raised. Well, the Arizona's band was assembled on deck and ready to do that. Somehow, some way, nobody quite figures out uh, why uh, the Na Nevada's band jumped the gun and began to play the national anthem uh, before the eight o'clock time. Now, as the band on the Nevada is playing, there's this roar beginning to be heard and explosions be beginning to be heard. And a couple of minutes before eight o'clock, the first wave of what will really be a three wave attack by the Japanese, these led by valve dive bombers 
come over and they're accompanied by Japanese zeros and their goal is basically to um, really stymie any kind of counterattack from Hickenfield and the uh, other airstrip on Fort Island. So they're not going out after the battleships immediately, but they are attacking those ancillary facilities. So as all of this roar, and at that point, Japanese zeros, the fighters are also beginning to strafe the line of battleships, the band on the Nevada uh, very quickly finishes up and tries to get below decks. And of course, likewise, on the Arizona and the other battleships, as it becomes clear as I quote one of the brothers in the book, basically, uh, you know, his buddy says to him, Andy, who are those guys? Well, many of the sailors recognize the red meatball emblem on the Japanese planes. And it was really, really clear, maybe not necessarily to some of the, the young green hands, but it was really clear to others, including John Anderson, who had who had seen a, a tour uh, in, in China as, as an observer, that this was a major attack. So the second wave then, and this is kind of interesting to differentiate between the second and the third wave of planes. There are Kate bombers on both of these waves, but the first wave is, has been outfitted by torpedoes. And for all, many years, there was the impression that the Arizona had been struck by torpedoes. Well, that's not really true. The planes come in across their, uh, the Pearl Harbor uh, lock and release torpedoes against particularly the uh, Nevada, whose band has just stopped playing, the West Virginia and the Oklahoma. Now, the West Virginia and the Oklahoma are moored outside, if you will, from Ford Island with two additional battleships that end up being protected from the torpedoes by the two ships that are outside of them. West Virginia takes torpedoes, starts to sink, starts to roll over. Deputy um, executive officer begins some counter flooding measures. West Virginia ends up sinking almost even into the mud. The Oklahoma is not so lucky. And it basically takes torpedoes, rolls over, hundreds of sailors are trapped. So you've got that first wave of great torpedo damage. And then, you know, the Arizona, up till this point, has pretty well escaped uh, any, any kind of, of injury. I've got um, stories from the brothers, those who were assigned to the, uh, to the fore of the ship, the forward part of the ship, none survived. The survivors really come from the rear, and that's because what happens in this third wave is that high-altitude bombers fly right up battleship row and start to drop bombs. The ships in front of the Arizona take a couple of hits. The Arizona takes some hits, and one bomb, armor-piercing bomb, and actually what these were were Japanese naval torpedoes kind of outfitted with fins and stuff to be dropped from high uh, altitude as bombs, goes right through the armor deck plating on the Arizona. And within 60 seconds or so, a secondary fire ignites the whole forward powder magazine, and the Arizona simply blows sky high. 
I mean, one observer from a, a ship, I think from the West Virginia close by, says, you know, the entire ship just rose up in the air and shook like a dog. That's that's his description. And then, of course, with that huge upheaval, as the ship settled back down, those decks forward. I mentioned Gussie Free, who's the, the father with his son there. Gussie's in sickbay, not feeling well. He's in the forward part of, of the ship by the forecastle. And, you know, those decks up front just go boom, boom, boom and start to pancake down. Some of the other brothers, the Christiansons, who, who you allude to, um, one of the brothers is in the rear of the ship aft, and he's basically assigned to turret number four. He gets into the turret. He's safe. He has no idea where his brother is, who went, as you read, to, to get his uh, new uh, clean cap for their photo. And they're trapped in the turret. And only after a while, as the power goes off and everything, do they manage to get out. You know, um, mm -hmm. and we can talk about some more of those experiences, but just, just while I'm thinking of it, you know, these experiences from these men, you know, some people, a couple of, of uh, folks, one reviewer said, well, you know, why didn't I include more uh, stories from the men who were on the ship? Well, I think you pointed it out, John, when you got 63 casualties out of 78 brothers, there are not many left to write those personal stories. So I had a piece together what happened to these brothers by, in some cases, the survivors' stories, because there were at least 15 brothers who survived, although not all of them were on the ship. A few survivors were in Pearl Harbor. Um, stories of other people who remembered seeing these men or had their own experiences in terms of getting off the ship. And finally, of course, some measure of first-person accounts from observers what it was like to see the ship go up, what it was like after that with this, um, two things, this huge column of smoke that just simply engulfs the ship. And then immediately there is this fleet of smaller craft that begin to go through, after the attack at least, begin to go through the waters and rescue what few survivors they can you know, more often than not, they have have the grim experience of retrieving bodies. Sad, sad story. Uh, well told on your end. What is especially good about not only about all your books uh, that require maps, and especially this book, is your map work is absolutely terrific. I can't recall another book that lays out Pearl Harbor as well as you have here and and gives you a worldview, too. Fantastic well, work. A big, a big okay. shout out to my cartographer. Uh, thank you, David Lambert. <laughs> a lot of people ask, I know I know it's been asked a, a million times, and I'm going to ask it again of you. Why were we caught flat-footed well, on I, that I think day? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I do not subscribe to sort of the conspiracy theory that somehow we knew or Franklin Roosevelt knew. I think that, I think that that's been been pretty well discounted, at least down to the level of, oh, we knew when they were coming exactly when. I think there was a widespread perception, certainly from Franklin Roosevelt all the way down, that uh, the Japanese were going to strike somewhere soon. 
We know that in Washington that Sunday, the Japanese ambassador is an hour late uh, meeting with uh, Cordell Hall, the Secretary of State, to deliver what was basically an ultimatum. They had anticipated that that would be delivered before the attack didn't happen that way, ended up being a surprise attack, which quite frankly uh, galvanized uh, the American nation as I think few things could do. So the point is, is that I think everyone from Franklin Roosevelt on down knew that an attack was coming somewhere in the Pacific. They really thought it was going to come, and of course it did come in the Philippines, but that it was not going to uh, come anywhere close to Hawaii, maybe midway. In fact, the, the, the good thing that there were not aircraft carriers caught in Pearl Harbor is that of the three carriers in the Pacific, Saratoga is on the east coast, or excuse me, on the west coast in uh, east of Pearl Harbor, uh, taking on planes after a, a outfit in uh, San Diego. The other two carriers are en route to deliver planes to Wake and Midway as as reinforcements. So the U.S. is pushing out this uh, line, if you will, of defense. But almost no one expected the attack to come at Pearl Harbor. Now, that said, you know, sometimes uh, there's a little bit of flat-footedness. Sometimes there is um, just an inability to really experience what might happen. You know, Admiral King, one of the four admirals you and I talked about on uh, with that book, The Admirals, had actually led a war game in 1938 that had... Um, planes, obviously U.S. planes, staging a mock attack from the north on the Hawaiian Islands. And, you know, the aftermath of that attack was the army who who was indeed caught flat-footed on that mock raid saying, well, well, what do you mean? You you launched that attack on an on a early Sunday morning. That wasn't fair. So, you know, there was plenty of things to read in the tea leaves of how the U.S. should have been better prepared. Uh, should Admiral Kimmel had ha have had more uh, picket destroyers out, perhaps? Yes. Should um, the the Army side of things have uh, flown more uh, sorties, uh, paid more attention to the famous uh, radar blip that uh, everyone discounted? All of those things sort of dominoed. And then, of course... The captured Japanese sub. Exactly. On, on, on the morning in Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, trying to slip into the anti-sub nets. All of them. At 6.15 in the morning, yeah, wasn't it? Yes. Very, three, three hours before the attack. Yes. very Four hours and, before the and attack. And actually, you know, again, if, if Kimmel at that point had said, you know, go to general quarters, and not many of these battleships had, had steam up, the Nevada did, but, you know, they either could have sortied or they, they perhaps could have moved down the channel. Interestingly enough, they were all moored with their bows pointed to sea on purpose so that they could move out as, as, as quickly as possible. So all of those things kind of start to stack the deck. And there, um, were some, there were some intelligence guys who got it right, were there not? Yeah, there, there are some people who are basically saying, um, you know, we think actually this is going to happen and it's going to happen uh, closer and it, it might it might be Pearl Harbor. But there, there are other people there who are who are just saying, oh, that's 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 absolutely an, an impossibility. And, you know, I guess in terms of of strategic impossibilities, 
at that point, it really shows the difference between the Japanese having gone ahead and embraced carriers and carrier operations and the United States really still relying on uh, battleships. Bill Halsey is out there with the carriers and it's a good thing because the carriers are gonna lead any kind of response in what's really a pretty grim year of, of 1942, at least the first six months until the Battle of, of Midway. And we're going to continue to build massive battleships. I think uh, there's something to be said for uh, MacArthur and, and Nimitz deciding to receive the Japanese surrender on this mammoth battleship, the Missouri, a good, good 400 feet longer, um, almost 400 feet longer than, than the Arizona. But, you know, one could also say it was the American production of aircraft carriers, particularly in the expanse of the Pacific, that, that really won World War II in the Pacific. And one subject for your next book, by the way, if I can recommend it now, you ought to do the court-martial of Billy Mitchell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I haven't. I, I have The only, only slight hint that I've done on Billy Mitchell um, I did a book, uh, MacArthur at War, about MacArthur in the Pacific, and one of um, MacArthur's early politically sensitive assignments was, in fact, to serve on, on Billy Mitchell's court-martial. But, you know, I mean, that kind of goes full circle to what we just said. I mean, Mitchell was ahead of his time. Uh, you know, yes, perhaps he wasn't most diplomatic in it, but when he, when he sinks the, uh, the captured battleships and really proves air power, this is early in the 1920s, and fast forward 20 years, it really takes this, this horrific uh, tragedy, both at a national level, but as, as we've been talking about so much at a personal level of these families and their sons and brothers, it, you know, it, 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 takes, it takes such a toll on that. I know the, obviously the United States and so many families were grieving after Pearl Harbor. And it wasn't until Doolittle's raid on Japan that we finally felt that we were paying back the debt. Tell me if it was if it was true. I read somewhere that when the Japanese ambassadors were in Washington at the same time, I think, as Pearl Harbor, that they had given us letters of friendship. And tell me if it's true or if you heard that those same letters of friendship were pasted to the noses of the bombs that were dropped during Doolittle's raid. Oh, you know, I have heard that story. I you know, I must admit, I'm not 100% sure if that's true or not, but I, I, have, he I, I have heard that. And you're absolutely right that um, in, in April of 42, when, when they launched the Doolittle Raid, I mean, that, that was really a, a pretty good boost for American morale. And in many respects, even though it didn't in, in cause much damage, in, in Japan, I think it suddenly made everyone from the emperor on down say, well, wait, how we were supposed to be in, impenetrable. Uh, how vulnerable are we? And, you know, someone you should should get on your on your on your show to talk about most recent books. Of course, there's there's a book called The, uh, the Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell, who's talking about the B-29 raids and everything. And I, I think that that. Japan just had no inkling, the people uh, in charge, what they had, as, as Admiral Yamamoto really said, that they had uh, awakened a sleeping tiger. And by the time American industry rolls out 
massive numbers of B-29s that conduct these horrific uh, bombing raids over Japan. Um, as much as they celebrated this expanse of carrier power to attack Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, they they received it back a hundred or a thousand fold in terms of their own devastation. I had read somewhere and very recently that the damage done by Doolittle's that a lot of people say that it didn't do that much in terms of taking lives, but I have read that that was suppressed by the Japanese. Probably the far bigger uh, loss and in injury was to Japanese psyche and, and even what, what it did and, and how it affected movements of, of, of ships and everything. So um, I, I, yeah, they changed their whole defensive position once they realized we could reach them. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I, 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 I let's let's just talk if we if we might about about a couple of the families. I I think it's important to put a little a little bit of personal face on this, and you know, you and I have talked again as as so often in the big picture about well, well, what did what did um, America expect? What did Japan expect? You know, sort of at a governmental level. But I got to tell you that that and and I've told that story many times that I like I've just did. But you know, at, at at the personal level, I was surprised that in in the rank and file and sailors above and below decks, there was really a premonition that war was was going to begin very, very soon, and it was going to be very personal to them. Now, again, many of them are anticipating that the fleet is going to sail and that they're going to go uh, westward, but so many of them in their letters home wrote about that. Let me let me just read you a paragraph from one, if I may, from uh, Edward Bud Height, and he's writing to his girlfriend, who is the, the girl next door, they were sort of engaged. Nobody said that official, but uh, he he writes to Donna and he says, when I get my next leave and we're back together, let's not waste a minute of it because it may be the last time we get together. Maybe he shouldn't have said that, Bud continued, but you know as well as I, he told Donna, that we may be at war any day now. It will be hard for those we love and those that love us, all my love, Bud. So this he's writing within a couple of weeks of, of December 7th. And uh, of course, um, the story is, is that Bud was killed. Uh, his younger brother was killed as well. And I tracked down the daughter of Donna who was quite candid in in saying her mother was never the same. Yeah, she she married she she married the daughter's uh, uh, father, of course, and had a family, but she was just never the same. I mean, this was the great love of 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 her life, and you know, John. I mean, there are there are other stories we we can talk about too. And let, let me just tell you one more about the um, the Shive brothers from California. Um, Malcolm and, and Gordon. And, you know, they had grown up in Laguna Beach, kind of a rough situation. Father died young, abusive stepfather. You know, what do you do? You, you, you run away in 1940 and you join the service. So Gordon joins the Marines. And uh, he's the big tough one of, of, the, of the two brothers. And Malcolm's a little bit more 
reserved. I, I can't really call him bookish because I think the, the 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 best grade that he got in school was in auto shop, and that was a D. Okay, so I mean, I mean, these kids had it rough. He joins Malcolm joins the Navy, so they end up. All of these battleships have have capital ships have have marine detachments as as guards and and, and special duty. So uh, Gordon's in the Marines on the Arizona. Malcolm's on the um, Arizona as well as a radio operator. So Gordon has been dating a girl back home by the name of Marge that they've all palled around with together growing up. So just here's just a little snippet from Gordon's level uh, letter to, to Marge, again, uh, literally 10, 10 days or less before December 7th. So Marge has not written Gordon in a while, and Gordon's nervous. So Gordon writes, what's the matter? Am I poison? Gordon had asked Marge at the start of a letter written on November 2nd, 1941. Then he got to the heart of the matter. I have heard that you and Harry had ideas of getting hitched. Well, if you do, I hope you will be happy. Uh, those magnanimous words aside, Gordon crossed out a couple of words and then added, no, that isn't cursing, just a misprint. Well, clearly he was upset. So Marge's response which has been lost, of course, because it would have been in Gordon's locker on the Arizona, set Gordon straight. He writes back to Marge again. This is now really is a couple of days. Uh, I guess it's dated November 20th of, of 41. Doggone, was I glad to hear you hear from you, Gordon wrote back. I thought we were on the outs, but I see that I was badly mistaken. Calling himself a dope for doubting and promising not to get any, quote, more of those silly ideas, Gordon confessed this was the second letter that he had written to her. He couldn't bring it to, to himself to mail it. He wanted to deliver it in person. So clearly, I think at that point, we can assume that Gordon was going to ask Marge to marry him. And of course, that letter that was never hand-delivered went down as well on the Arizona. And, um, you know, both Malcolm and Gordon are killed. What little we have from them comes from those letters that went to both Marge and and uh, the, their mother, the Shives mother. Uh, I think I was in touch with what would be their um, great nephew. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, six months later, Marge marries Harry, just like Gordon was worried about. So, I mean, at some level, life goes on, but... Uh, there's a lot of personal trauma uh, that's that's in this particular story below decks. Uh, never mind the bigger picture things that we can talk about as far as strategy. There was a story you wrote, I think, about an engagement ring that was never delivered to that went down with the Arizona. Yeah, as far as I know, that would have been Bud Height. The first letter I, I, I read there that that he had, a, everyone suspected that he had a ring for Donna, and he was going to deliver that uh, on on his next leave. And it's to the best of my knowledge that that ring was 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 never found. There were really just two main attacks, but all through the cleanup and all through the rescue of the of the few men who were still alive in the water, they were thinking that another attack was coming. That didn't just last for a day or two, did it? That lasted for a long time. 
Well, it definitely lasted for a long time. I, I think it was probably most critical and, and poignant that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon when, you know, here everybody is. Uh, uh, you've mentioned the casualty totals. Uh, by coincidence, there there was a man who lived in, in my town who at that point was a, was a young medic at the hospital. And he left some some reminiscences of what it was like to see this steady flow of of wounded, uh, badly, badly burned uh, sailors making their way into the hospital there on on Hospital Point. And uh, those who are out in the smaller ships, those are trying to get reorganized. Uh, are are looking over their shoulder, absolutely looking over their shoulder. And you know there are reports that evening and even later, the the media in Honolulu goes wild with reports that the Japanese have actually landed uh, in northern Oahu. That uh, a few additional explosions are are related to to a third wave. That doesn't happen. And of course. Um, uh, Admiral Nagumo on the Japanese side is severely criticized later for not launching that third attack because as Nimitz recognizes when he gets out there, look, this is really, really bad. This is catastrophic. But the carriers are okay. The submarine pens are okay. The oil storage facilities are okay. And the dry docks are okay. So there's a heck of a mess in terms of lives and ships, but at least we're going to stand and fight from Pearl Harbor, not have to retreat to the, to the West Coast. So on a very personal basis, so many of these brothers then spend that time, Sunday evening uh, into Monday and Tuesday, and, and sometimes it, it takes that whole week, um, looking, particularly those who have been uh, on leave or in Honolulu, going out to the Arizona, looking through the hospitals, looking through the what part of the ship they can access, trying to find their brothers. And of mm -hmm. course, unfortunately, the entire story is, is, the, is that it, it's grim. No one's able to do that. The knowledgeable um, kind of older hands you know, once they've seen what the forward part of the ship looks like and you know that your younger brother's duty station was in the number two turret that is now basically pancaked, um, that's pretty hard. But then the next step is even harder because you got to either call, telegram, or write home via airmail and tell your parents that the sibling is gone. So those those are some some pretty rough days. And, you know, I, I guess, John, I, I just leave you with with kind of this image. One of I, I end one of the chapters that um, as the sun went down that night. And of course, we think of December, but it's really quite warm in, in Honolulu. It's about 80 degrees. People have been b battling fires and sweltering. And, you know, the moon comes up and across the harbor there, there's all these little white floating objects. And you have to do a little double take and say, what is that? What is that? And of course, there were so many caps that had simply been lost or, or, or come off sailors or whatever. And that, as they sort of bob through the oil slick there, again, 
is is a is a very poignant and and emotional moment. So you know those those kind of things were difficult to write about. At this point in the interview with Walter Borneman, I was thinking that we should never ever forget Pearl Harbor, and never forget that every day of our lives as Americans, there are going to be dictators and despots plotting to take us down. I asked Walter if he had one more story to share to help us remember exactly what the price of freedom is. Well, John, let me just add maybe maybe one story. It doesn't come from a brother, but I think it's uh, it's it, it's pretty indicative of what all of these families went through. Uh, there's there's a young man in the Marine Detachment called Russell Durio. He's from a little town in Louisiana called Sunset, and basically he ends up being assigned to the Arizona. And on the morning of December seventh, he it, he's finally realized that. Um, one of the people from near his hometown that he used to play basketball against in uh, high school is also assigned to the ship. So he's he's made uh, arrangements to, to meet up with him, and I think they're going to go into Honolulu together. Of course, what happens is the, um, the bombs hit. Both of them are killed, and the brother of Russell Durio, who always went by the initials A.D., um, is in Boy Scouts at the time, back in Little Sunset, uh, Louisiana. And just a couple of days before, he has mailed to his brother, Russell, a box of cookies that his mom and a couple of aunts have stayed up all night uh, baking. And that's going to be to share with his Marine detachment buddies and, and sort of an early Christmas present. Well, of course, as, as what happens, all of those packages that have been mailed, along with so many letters, get returned, marked addressee unknown, return to sender, unable to deliver, whatever. And that box of cookies returns to Sunset, Louisiana. And at that particular point, that's about all of Russell Durio that's coming home. So younger brother A.D. and his dad, Russell's dad, uh, take that box of cookies out to the backyard and bury the box of cookies. So that's that's the kind of, of heartbreaking story that occurs through all of these families with these with, with these 38 sets of brothers. But, you know, I, I, I think if there's there's an absolute final takeaway, John, I mean, we, we just have to focus, as is your theme, that all of these men are, are heroes. Heroes indeed at um, small levels and heroes at levels of bravery that they never thought possible that morning when they woke up. So it's, it's been my honor and, and my privilege to, to tell their stories. Well, I'm certainly glad you do. And thank you for this book, Brothers Down. I'm sure that our listeners are going to want to enjoy this book. It's a fantastic story of Americans in a time of crisis. And again, a story of heroism and one that I hope no one can forget soon. Thank you very much, Walter Borneman, for joining us at 1001 Heroes. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. You're welcome, John. It's good to be with you again. <laughs>